Uh, we're in week four of our series called Foundations, and just to be very clear here, I hope this is a series that our church can build upon for years. We are going to ask new members or member candidates to go through this series, to listen to it, to understand some of the foundational values and aims of Savior Community Church. What are we trying to do here? What are we aiming at? What's the direction we want to go in? What would it look like to grow in the right way? Because it's very easy to grow, but what would it look like to grow in a way that is God-centered, that is honorable to God? And so we started a series off three weeks ago by talking about, for the love of God, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We also want to be a church that experiences God through prayer, that prays boldly in the name of Jesus, that understands what it means when we get to pray in Jesus' name. Last week, we talked about trembling before God's word, and we want to be a church where we come before the Lord, we come before his word in full submission that the scriptures are the sole and ultimate authority for our faith and practice. And what I'm hoping through this series is that first through preaching, then there will be prayer, and then an examination of all of our personal examples, especially those who are leaders here at this church, and then we need patience. Little by little, hopefully, by God's grace, there will be long-term growth and cultural change where we have many, many conversations over the years. We preach, we pray, personal example, patience, and we understand that heart change may take some time because we're not looking for short-term behavioral change. We're not looking for short-term fruit. We want God to provide something that will last long, that will be supernatural. And so today we're continuing on in week four talking about what it means to be a savior community a savior community. What does it look like to be a true community that belongs to the savior? How can we have deepening community that is brought about by God's supernatural work? And I use that word deepening intentionally, not the word deep, but deepening because relationships are always in process. They're not static. They take time. They change. But deepening relationships means that we're not okay staying at a superficial level. And in a church our size, you can't go deeper with everyone, but you shouldn't be satisfied with going deep with no one. Even just look at Jesus' relationships, we'll say his disciples or his friendships. You know, he had a lot of friendships, but he knew some better, or he was closer to some than he was to others. He had the 70 disciples. He had the 12 main disciples, his inner circle. And then within the inner circle, he had the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Some of us are just fine knowing 70 people at church, but not really going deeper with anyone, and we need to raise our expectations. Others can be so unrealistic about relationships, about trying to find the 12 that we expect everyone to be like our close friend, and we need to be more realistic and maybe more gracious. Others just lack the patience and the hard work because it takes sacrifice to build a three or that inner circle. We need to have patient expectations. They don't happen overnight. And the church is constantly going to change. It's amazing to me, after four years, how different our church looks. People have come and gone. They've gotten married. They've moved away. They've went to a different church. 
And we have so many new people to get to know and so many old relationships we want to continue to invest in. And I think it's one of the marks, personally, I've shared this with a lot of people, that one of the marks of emotional and spiritual maturity is that you can constantly rebuild. You can constantly grow new relationships. You're not going off of nostalgia like the good old days. I need my old youth group friends. Like for me, all my old youth group friends or my old friends, they're all not in California anymore. That's just changed. And one day I found myself in like my mid-20s, I was just like, where do all my friends go? And I, had to re- I realized I don't have any like close friends. I got to rebuild. I got to rebuild with those who are in front of me now. And if we're constantly looking at the past and thinking that will be enough and we're not continuing to build, continuing to invest, eventually you'll wonder where everyone went. Our aim at Savior is to move towards depth in relationships and to nurture that and to have that type of culture, to aim for that type of culture rather than encouraging a culture of shallowness or superficiality. And so let me, let me just start at a very basic place. It's good for us to examine what is the bond that brings us together. What's the glue that holds us together? Every church has a certain feel, certain commonalities, and probably a certain majority, but it's not that hard to create communities based upon similarities. You may come to this church because there's lots of young families or young professionals or lots of people like me. That's inevitably going to happen to some degree, but in the end, we just have to acknowledge that's just sort of the high school game. That's just what we did in high school, whether you sat with the jocks the, the anime crew, the K-pop crew, or for me, the cool band nerds, right? I do think there was the cool group of the band nerd group, and I do think I was part of that group. Any band nerds here? Come on. Yeah, yeah right? Loud and proud, right? No, not really, right? That's how high school works, you know, where we come together and we have certain commonalities. Maybe you like the same sports team. Is there any San Antonio Spurs fans in here? None of you are my friends, right? But you are celebrating with me this week if you know what happened, right? But you have to typically have bonds that are based upon similarities. One author named Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop in their book, Compelling Community, says, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar experience, similar life stage. It's entirely natural and can be spiritually beneficial, but if this is a sum of what we call church community, I'm afraid we've built something that will exist even if God didn't. And a church that's built upon natural similarities and demographics and preferences, that's not going to be as strong of a bond as something that's supernatural, something that transcends our commonality in Christ. It's actually a weak glue. You know, I can enjoy my bandmates, and we were working towards this amazing field show, you know, and I played the mighty clarinet, and, you know, and we, we had this bond, but it's not, it's, it was a weak bond in the end. The commonality, the glue that held us together was weak. If your only glue is your sports teams or your life stage or your career or something like that, it's a weak bond. It's not a supernatural bond. It's a very natural bond that the world could have. As a local church, we want to aim, constantly aim for something that's supernatural. We need something that transcends natural bonds. 
In Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, you see what it is for the Philippian church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, because of your koinonia, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, that they were partners in the gospel cause. And if the gospel is our shared interest and passion, then we can have all types of people that are brought together that are not based upon other similarities. And that's much harder to explain in the Bible. If you look at the book of Ephesians, it was constantly, it was the Jew and Gentiles uniting. For us, it may be different ethnicities, different political groups, short and tall, rich and poor, educated and not so educated, the shy and the scary, the fit and the flabby, That's the supernatural bond that we hope the gospel will create for us, where similarity in other things is not a requirement for unity and oneness. That's a community that's harder to naturally explain. And again, is it wrong to first come together based upon certain similarities? No, it's not wrong. But again, we have to acknowledge that that's something that would exist even if God didn't. And it's actually possible in a sermon on community, to overemphasize community. To be the community. You know, our little catchphrase, you know, our church is proudly boring, right? We tried to pick a name, and we're like, oh, I see all these other churches with fancy names. We're, we ended up with this boring name, Savior Community, right? It's just very typical, But our catchphrase, if we have one, is know the Savior and be the community. And it's very possible to emphasize that second part while neglecting the first. Easily fall into the temptation to just emphasize community. I've done that before. I was a youth pastor for nine years. And it's easy to emphasize community, especially amongst youth. We all want to belong somewhere. We need someone to feel like they're our family, we want to be loved, we want to have each other's backs, we need to build community. But all of that can be done without the gospel. And we try so hard to be the community, but if that's all we're doing, there's no power there. There's no real life there. You can rig the situation and try to come up with certain small groups or spiritual highs or emotional experiences, but last, it won't last. The focus shouldn't be on having a strong community. It needs to be on something that's outside of ourselves, something that we're all looking towards, something bigger than ourselves. It has to be about God. Community shouldn't be the substance. It should be the the shadow, God. It's about God. And let me make clear, if you want community, if that's why you're here, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. But understand what you need first is not community, it's Christ. Playing church won't last very long if you have no interest in seeking after him. And for those who are only Christian in name but don't actually have a faith of your own, let me make it very clear. You can belong to a church community and still be on the pathway to hell. You can pretend to play the part, but you know you're faking it. That's what John 15 talks about. It's Judas fruit. It's fake fruit. It's fruit that may look like everything else, but in the end will be thrown into the fire. We're not doing you any favors as a community if we think it's okay to slide into the church community and have belonging without actually having any interest in belonging to Christ. 
I don't want you to feel comfortable being a church attender but not a Christ follower. And I hope that being part of our community will cause you to examine your own faith or lack of faith. And there's probably a good group of us at every church, including Savior Church, that like to roam around the periphery of church but are actually unconverted. And every single sermon, every single part of this series won't mean anything to you. It won't actually be significant to you unless you're in Christ. Unless you believe and trust the work of Jesus on the cross. Because I'm going to talk about what community looks like in the second half of this sermon, but if you're not in Christ and you're trying to be part of this community, there's only two results for you long term. One is that you'll eventually fall into despair because you'll realize you can't live the Christian life without Christ. It'll be a Christless Christianity. There will be no power. And that'll lead to despair. Or you'll become what we call, in Christian circles, a legalist. A religious hypocrite who focuses on actions and external behavior rather than true heart change. You may even trick yourself into thinking that by doing all these churchy things that you are now acceptable before God. Rather than the other way, which is the gospel way, where it's I'm accepted, therefore I obey, versus legalistic thinking, which says I need to obey, I need to do all these things, and therefore I'm accepted. It's radically different. And I mentioned this last week, but you may come here to have your felt needs met. You feel lonely. You feel miserable, you feel alone, you feel unsatisfied, you feel unfulfilled, you feel like there's something missing, you feel like you're looking for meaning, and that's legitimate, and again, I'm glad you're here, but you want to know what the Bible says is your real need, your fundamental problem? It's not that you lack meaning or fulfillment or, com or community. I'm not going to try to sell you on Christianity based on that stuff. Your fundamental problem is your sin. Your sin, which is oftentimes hidden, and it's hideous. That's your biggest problem. If you want to go to the ABCs of counseling, A is that you're alienated from God. B is that you're in bondage to your sin. And C is that you are in conflict with him. That's what God says is your greatest problem. You are not right with God. Look at how Paul describes our predicament apart from Christ in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of dis disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. Well, that's not encouraging, Paul. Tell us how great we are. Help us reach our full potential. Self-actualization. Give me self-esteem. I'm not here to be preached at. I just want love. And nowadays, the world wants us to tell, tell you how wonderful we all are, but if you look at the world, it's messed up, and it's not just a few bad apples. We're all bad. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture never gives us a flattering view of ourselves. We're children of wrath. 
But my guess is that the reason many of us don't believe the gospel, it's not because we think we're so bad and there's no hope, but rather it's because we think we're relatively good and therefore there's no need. And chances are your assessment of your own capacity for evil and sin is way too small. You're worse than you think. I'm worse than I think. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It starts with God who is rich in mercy. And if we're honest, some of us may respond honestly to this, like, why do I need God's mercy? Why do I need forgiveness? Do I really need that? God has offered forgiveness to you, but it means nothing unless you're aware of your need for that forgiveness. Do you know God's mercy in a personal way? Have you bowed down in your hearts before him as Lord and Savior? One day you'll stand before God and you'll have to answer for yourself. Your spouse won't be able to answer for you. Your parents won't be able to answer for you. It'll be you and God. And what will you say? That I should get into heaven because, you know, I'm not that bad? And we need to pause, and we can't move on too quickly from this, because if we don't get a hold of this, that everything we do in the Christian life is in view of God's mercy and grace, then what will happen after this sermon on community is that you'll leave this room thinking, oh, I should be part of the community and try my best and pull ourselves up. Let's build the community together. But if we leave out the Savior, and we think... It's okay, I don't have to be accepted by God. I could just do, do community. Man, I'm leaving you in a dangerous place. I've received his love and mercy, and therefore I want to do the same. I want to give the same to others. The call to be a savior community is a call to those who have been set free by the grace and mercy of God. It's a call for those who know that Jesus took the punishment we deserve and are amazed that he forgave us, and everything flows out of that. We see that in Luke chapter 7, where a sinful woman comes before Jesus, and this was a woman who probably didn't sleep well at night. She was defined by her past, by her sins. When people saw her, they thought, sinner. But sometime before Luke 7, we don't know when, she heard of Jesus, She might have even met Jesus. She might have been just standing in the back of the crowd where no one else can see her. And she's listening to his preaching and she's hearing a message of forgiveness. Her whole life, she's probably been told, you can't be forgiven. You're too dirty. You're a sinner. But Jesus is saying forgiveness is available for all who who believe in me. That's good news to her. And at some point, she trusted the message, and she received that forgiveness. And now, sometime later, she comes before Jesus, and she's anointing his feet with precious ointment. She's in tears before him because she knows how much she's been forgiven. She was forgiven much, and therefore she loved much. And the actions of this silent, sinful woman speak more than a thousand words. And the entire Christian life is made up of growing in our understanding of this how much we've been forgiven, which flows out as more love. 
It's the forgiveness of Christ that bonds us together. And it's the forgiveness of Christ that will enable us to love others who are not like us. One of my favorite series is the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've actually read the whole series. It's a, it's a big series. Lots of different books. The most popular one maybe you're familiar with is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And just to give a quick view of what happens in that movie, there's a kid named Edmund, and here's just this annoying kid. Full of pride, he thought he knew best, always critical, fails to listen to his older brother Peter, and he's constantly fighting with them, and he ends up going into Narnia and splitting with them and betraying them to go to the side of the evil witch, and he deserts his own family. But Aslan, who's sort of like the Jesus figure, the lion, he comes and receives him, and he frees him, and Edmund comes, and he's freed, and he shakes hands with his family, and he says sorry to every one of them, and then they show him grace. But that grace came at a terrible cost to Aslan, who had to die to free Edmund. There's another book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is actually my favorite book of the series. And in this book, there's a new kid. His name is Eustace. And this boy is a spoiled brat. Everybody hates him. He likes to make life hard for everyone. He likes bossing everyone around. He's an offense to everyone. And one day he comes across this dragon's treasure where he falls asleep and he wakes up and he realizes he's a dragon because of his greed. And he has this dragonish thoughts in his heart. He becomes a dragon himself. But eventually, eventually Aslan comes and he rips out the dragon in his heart and he turns him back into a boy. And so Eustace, after this, he's just like, what happened? He heads back to the ship and who does he find waiting for him? Edmund. Edmund the traitor, Edmund who received grace. And how did Edmund respond to Eustace upon his return? He says this, between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. I was a traitor. And C.S. Lewis ends this chapter by saying, it would be nice and fairly true to say from that point that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very, very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice, the cure had begun. If you want to know if the gospel is truly melting your heart, how do you view others in their failures, weaknesses, and even their ugliness? Do you look at them with harsh eyes? Self-righteous people are not patient and understanding in the face of the failure of others. They will always be impatient with those who are messing up or have lost their way. No one gives grace better than the one who knows that they themselves are desperately in need of it. Do you look at them as if they're just totally different from you, or do you recognize that you are more like them than unlike them? They're a work of grace and process, and so are you. We'll always have Eustaces or even Edmonds in our lives. The tiresome ones, the unlovable ones, the ones that are just a pain, and we can easily jump on them or criticize them, but... If you have the gospel in your heart, you will see them with the glasses of grace. Every day I put on these glasses, and through these glasses, I could see the world in a certain way. 
And I could see people through the glasses of fairness where I'm only going to do for you what you do for me. I'm not going to love you if you don't love me. Or I could put on the glasses of grace and say, what do I deserve? And yet I got everything. And that changes how we view one another. The cure has begun when we start to see each other with the glasses of grace. We all have relapses. But God gives us more grace. Do you see why the gospel has to be the foundation of a true supernatural community? It's the only thing that can kill my self-righteousness. It's the only way I will be enabled to love beyond my natural human capacity when I know that I have been loved first. That has to be the start of community. It has to start with the Savior. Community is premature because true Christian community won't be possible for someone who isn't a Christian. It will come, supernatural community comes from supernatural faith as we preach the gospel on the pulpit and to one another, and it's something God has to create. Let's not be so arrogant to say we're going to build community. We can cultivate it, we can invest in it, but ultimately, if you look at Paul and Apollos, it says we did all these things, but God will give the growth. He is the giver of faith, and it's God who will build the community, and so Maybe some churches would end the sermon there, but that was my introduction, okay? Let's talk about what that looks like, okay? What does it actually look like once you're a Christian with the Bibles, all of the Bibles, one another's, what does it look like to live that out? And the gospel makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear that inherent to believing the gospel is a depth of commitment to one another, Part of becoming a believer is now seeing yourself as responsible and helping others keep the faith and grow in the faith. We need to have first faith-preserving relationships and faith-building relationships. We need to help others keep the faith and help others grow in the faith. And I'm going to look at two texts from the book of Hebrews. And the first one is in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Faith-preserving relationships. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. And so, first question I ask, like, as Christians, why do we desperately need community? And the author of Hebrews gives us his theology here. He gives us a certain theology of remaining sin or indwelling sin. Sin that's still present and powerful in us even after we become Christians. And the scary thing about indwelling sin is that it's, decept- it's deceptive. It's deceitful by nature. You've heard me mention this many times, but not only are we blind, but we're blind to our blindness. We're blind in certain areas of our life, but we think we see, and that's what's scary about sin. We walk around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of ourselves than we do. That's scary. That's what sin does, and it's a picture of our ability to swindle ourselves. 
to deceive ourselves. Every one of us are masters at self-swindling, self-deception. It will deceive 100 out of 100 people listening to this sermon. If you ever watch sports, let's say if you uh, watch basketball, there's, let's say there's a loose ball, okay? meaning like both players are going after the ball, the ball's going out of bounds, and they're both trying to save it, and they're both reaching at the end, it's like the ball hits out of bounds. What, is, what does each team immediately do? They immediately point to their basket. They immediately point to the fact that, no, no, the other team touched the last, and it's our ball. I don't think I've ever seen a basketball player or a sports player in the moment where it's like there's like a, a controversial call say, oh, no, no, I touched it. It was the other team. They have, it's their ball. Both teams immediately respond by saying the other team touched it last. But for us, we can see like, no, no, we can objectively see it. No, it was, it's their ball. It's their ball. But in the heat of the moment, that never happens. I see this all the time with my two kids that are similar in age. If my daughter, for example, takes the toy away from my son in an angry way and he starts crying and I ask her, why did you do that? I promise you that my, none of my kids have ever said, Daddy, I've got sin in my heart that makes me selfish. So I got angry and took what I wanted. Please pray for me, Daddy. I've never heard that before. Because like us, my kids have bought into the lie that our biggest problem exists outside of ourselves. It's not me. I'm not the problem here. It's the other person. We want to think all the problems are a certain circumstance or a person, and we're so skilled at explaining away our wrong behavior by pointing to something outside of ourselves, aren't we? We're skilled lawyers at convincing ourselves that the problem can't be us, the husband and wife that gossips after DG about what someone else shared will immediately justify themselves. That's not gossip, we're just sharing. When we get angry at someone, we'll immediately point out how if that person had behaved differently, then I wouldn't have gone angry. And we can let ourselves off the hook in all types of ways. And I'm getting this from a book by Paul Tripp, and so don't think I'm pointing at you, okay? Because I'm just taking this quote, okay? She misunderstood me. I was busy. I didn't mean it that way. Don't be so sensitive. I wasn't feeling well. It's just my personality. Sorry, I just forgot. I must not have heard you. He talked me into it. You have no idea how difficult he is to live with. I just ran out of time. I'm sorry, other things just got in the way. And over the years, I've learned, I'm, I've learned to be pretty scared at how good of an inner lawyer I have. And yet, yet, even though I'm aware of that, I am so good at convincing myself that I'm right. And I'm deceived. That's what sin does. Sin wears a mask. Sin deceives us into defending ourselves and our righteousness, even as Christians. And we can run away from a problem, move to a new church, move to a new city, do all we can to get away from certain people or location, move into a monastery. That's what they tried to do. But we can't run away 
from the deceitful and dwelling sin that lives in us. That constantly threatens us, that evil that still resides in our hearts, and it's only the grace of God that can free us from out. We need to cry out for God's grace. Verse 13, but exhort one another as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this entire section in Hebrews chapter 3, it's a warning from the Holy Spirit. People want to know what the Holy Spirit is saying? Look right here, verse 7, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Chapter 4, verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the word already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do we see what the Holy Spirit is trying to say here? Don't harden your hearts. Hear my voice. This is a section that's a warning to believers who are getting tired and drifting and their hearts are being hardened. And this indwelling sin, when undetected or unexposed or unforsaken, can lead to an unbelieving, hardened heart that falls away. That's the warning. There's a battle outside, but there's a bigger battle raging within me. That's where the real war is. We have sin. We have deceitfulness in our hearts. It's a heart condition. The word here for harden is scleros. Scleros, where we get the idea of a hardened heart, a hardened arteries, a heart condition. We get the word sclerosis from that, a building up of fatty deposits in the arteries. There's a block there, and it's dangerous. And it's a scary warning in this section because there were, he's talking about the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, there were 600,000 people that thought they were doing it right in the wilderness and they never made it to the promised land. That's something we should think about. We should chew on that. The hardening of hearts, which was typical of the Israelites in the wilderness, it led to them no longer entering into the promised land, into the, into the rest. In Exodus 17, they rebelled. They hardened their hearts. And at Numbers 14, while they're in sight of the promised land, they rebelled, big rebellion. They never walked in. And as Christians, we can harden our hearts by all types of different ways. We can neglect private and public worship. We can have bad company. Unconfessed and unrepentant sin will block your heart. It's spiritual heart disease. All sin is, hardening of nat- is, is, is of a hardening nature. Think about lust. Think about bitterness. Those two come to mind for me. At first, you're, you're, you're fighting against it, and little by little, your heart gets hardened towards it, and you compartmentalize it. And you say, I'm doing fine, even if you're struggling in that area. And you stop fighting. And you rationalize it, you justify it, you defend it, and eventually become numb or indifferent to it. You stop feeling bad. And isn't it like in the book of Hebrews, he has to constantly remind them, consider Christ, remember Christ, fix your eyes on Christ. Why does he have to constantly remind them of that? Because we so easily forget Christ. We so easily forget the cross. 
we're in danger. And in our hardened hearts, oftentimes we don't want the prescription. We want to hold on to our sin. I read in the New York Times that, did you know that 32% of prescriptions signed by physicians never actually reach, um, they never actually get taken? 50% of those prescribed with chronic illness never actually take the prescription? I can imagine if I'm a pharmacist or if I'm a doctor how frustrating that would be. Like, man, I'm trying to save you. Do you not see that? I'm trying to give you life. Take the prescription. And so many of us will do all we can to wiggle out of taking the prescription. We'll fight it. We'll resist it. Even though we know it's what we need, our hearts are deceived and hardened, and we'd rather hold on to it. You can't fully know yourself by yourself. Self-examination is a community project, and don't assume your view of yourself is always accurate. We're swindlers. Do not harden your hearts. And so if the greatest danger is inside of me, wouldn't it be the ultimate pride, the most foolish thing I could do to think I'm okay left alone? Don't be wise in your own eyes, but instead recognize what you need. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our capacity for self-deception is so great that we need regular, maybe even daily intervention. Sin can be so attractive, we can become so deaf and blind, and so we have to help each other. We have to exhort one another as long as it is called today, to preserve our faith, to stand firm, to not fall away. The emphasis is on the responsibility we have towards one another. We need to have intentional, faith-preserving relationships to exhort one another, to wake each other up, to pull each other back, to speak the truth in love. We should be thankful for friends around us that say, hey, look out, look out. Some of my favorite TV shows, I realize they're always like in a hospital setting, right? Um, house, hospital playlist. I, I love that drama, right? <laughs> Doctor Romantic, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, uh, I'm a romantic at heart, so that sort of makes sense. But there are, are specific scenes in those dramas where I have to turn away because when the knife hits the skin, I can't, I can't look. And they're so graphic nowadays. I'm just like, dude, we don't need, it's just, they get in there. The camera gets in there. And when the knife hits the, kin, uh, the skin, I can't watch that. Good surgeons have the stomach to stick the knife in. They cut the body to heal the body. And honestly, many of us, and me as a pastor, I'm a coward compared to a good surgeon. It's a brave thing to cut to heal. It's much easier and much more foolish to just say nice, flattering things all the time, to be a flatterer, where after you exhort or call someone back from sin, they don't feel bad. They actually feel better about themselves. But if you went into a surgery, and that person after the surgery was like, man, I feel amazing. 
That surgery was a failure. And we all need heart surgery or eye surgery or whatever you want to call it. We're seriously ill and we need to be able to see much more clearly. We need a good physician. We need an honest diagnosis. A good friend is someone who is willing to be honest and not allowing you to continue unchallenged in sinful or wrong attitudes. And yet, yet they see you with humility in the glasses of grace. You see how hard that is? We don't need friends to help us sin. I could do that on my own. I need friends who will challenge us or challenge me to do right. And we care about them even more than we care about what they're going to think about us afterwards. We shouldn't act out of self-preservation, but to help preserve that person's faith, even at the risk of rejection, even if they're upset with us. I am such a coward at this. Somebody told me recently, I was surprised. They're like, oh, yeah, you're, 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 you're a rebuker. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, that's, that sort of sucks. Right? <laughs> you're a rebuker. And then, because to me, I only rebuke those that I'm secure with. It's easy to rebuke those that you know are probably going to respond well. It's easy to rebuke those that are humble and then I'll share honestly, hey, you got to work on that, but it's because I feel secure with you. If I've rebuked you, I probably feel secure with you. But it's much harder to rebuke someone knowing that they may reject you. But you love them so much that you're going to call them away from their sins. Can I rebuke humbly even those who may be angry at me afterwards? That's a good friend. And through our imperfect attempts and actions, the writer says Hebrew, uh, our hearts may be prevented from hardening. Many will be encouraged to stay true on the journey, and it's only those who stay true to the end of the journey that will gain the prize. We need to unmask sin to prevent it from deceiving us as we live honestly with each other, opening our souls, confessing our sins, and preaching with each other or to each other. As we do that, we will help loosen sin's grasp on each other's heart. It will help us preserve and keep the faith. Perseverance is a community project. But not just keep the faith, build the faith. I don't want us to just be rebuking each other all the time, but how can we encourage each other? A second text in Hebrews, 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and I'll just look at this briefly. Verse 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider, the Greek word there is katalomen. It's this idea of giving your full consideration. Brainstorm, be creative, be thoughtful. Think about it diligently. How can you stir up one another towards love and good deeds? And let's just start with the basic there. Many of, many of us are often thinking about how can someone else meet my needs? But here it's talking about how can you stir up their faith? 
How can you build them up in their faith? Not how can they meet your needs, but how will you meet theirs? If you go into a relationship, and this is why, again, we have to go back to the gospel, and you're trying to just use the other person to fill up your needs, if that's constantly your obsession, that relationship will likely collapse. You will be most blessed if you live to be a blessing. Relationships thrive when we try to outdo each other in serving and supporting one another. Be thoughtful about this. You know, I'm terrible. I am terrible at giving gifts. I'm very bad at this because partly I'm very practical. What's the gift we should give them? A gift card. A gift card. And part of it is like, hey, that's just practical. They could get what they want with it. But part of it is just, I admit, laziness. I don't want to think about it. I don't have time for this. And so what I do is nowadays, though, I've learned to listen to my wife, right, where she says, like, let's do this for this person, this person. And I'm just like, no, gift card it is, right? And they're like, no, that's not very thoughtful, right? I'd rather get them something they want, but part of me, you know, just doesn't want to put the, put the thinking into it. But I'm so amazed at, like, how thoughtful some people can be. They just, they're so good at customizing a gift to a person's needs. What will encourage them? What do they need? What will they love? And you give it so much thought, and honestly, it's humbling for me. And if we're going to spur one another towards love and good deeds, we need to know each other. And we need to know what it takes to stir up that person towards those love and good deeds. There's no like one size fits all when it comes to loving people. We're all different. Think about it. Be thoughtful about it. When it comes to Sundays, how can I prepare the night before? Who do I sit with? Who am I going to talk with? Where do I eat? Who do I need to meet with? Who needs some encouragement? Who do I know that I can pray for? How can I use my talents? How can I encourage? Who should I hang out with afterwards? There's a lot more thought and intentionality it leads to a lot more effectiveness. And beyond that, there's a lot of people around us who are going through a lot. They just need our words of encouragement, however small it may seem. Little encouragements, words of affirmations can be multiplied by 10, not because of how nice or eloquent, eloquent you were, but because you communicated your heart, because you cared. Learn to ask each other deeper questions. What is the Lord teaching you? What sins have you been struggling with? How can I support you in that? How can I pray for you? That'll stir them up. Don't make it about yourself, but what is the Lord teaching you? Talk about God and who he is. Testify of his faithfulness. That stirs me up. Good conversations about God stir me up. If we're Christians, it shouldn't be weird for us to talk to each other about Christ. And if you're going to consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, then you need to make sure you're not neglecting meeting up together, as is the habit of some. You can't love without commitment. How can you stir up one another if you're not present? If you're not around at our gatherings, the word here for gathering together, meeting together, is epi, synagogan. It's this idea of in the synagogue, in the gathering, in the official or the formal gatherings. And it definitely takes more than formal gatherings to grow in our faith, but at the very least, it includes that. Now, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to say that. It's my job to be here. 
right? It's my job to be here, but at least for a couple years, it wasn't my job to be here. I wasn't the pastor, and I understand it's so tempting to neglect meeting up together. It's so tempting. How nice would it be to just do my own thing? How nice would it be to go off of my schedule and what's convenient for me to gain two or three nights a week, to have Sundays free, to just sit, watch Netflix, spend time with my kids? How nice would it be to have zero responsibility and obligation when I go to church, to have zero obligation to sit with someone or to interact with someone who annoys me? That sounds nice. But I have to admit, I have to admit, a huge part of that is this, this big narcissist in me. Where it's just like, I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do. I want to make things my way. I want to feed myself my way. And it's the epitome of me, the me generation. But the reason I come to church in part is to fulfill Hebrews 10.25. If I'm not present, I can't be there for you. I can't encourage you to sing if I'm not next to you, I can't ask you how you are if I'm not here. How transformative would it be for our church if we just lived out one verse, Mark 10, 45, which says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That even Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. That would be a transforming verse for any church. If we came not to be blessed, not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing. If I'm not here, I'm not blessed, and I don't get to be a blessing. And there's always going to be necessary reasons. Necessary reasons. But I'm talking about the needless reasons where we just don't want to be here. And even if you're here, Well, let me just say this. Don't underestimate the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. Just being there. You know, Mark, it says that Jesus chose his disciples that they may be with him. The be with factor, just being together. Don't underestimate that. Because, you know, there's a phrase, being home doesn't equal being present. Being home doesn't equal being present. And... Most of us who are living with our family, especially if you have kids, we know what that means. How often am I home, but I'm not present? And it's very easy to fill a seat, but are you genuine and meaningful participants in what's going on at church? Let me wrap this up. Paul Tripp says this about the need for the community. And I think it summarizes well what it means to be a savior community. I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive. That's, a, that's such a great phrase. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I have realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. I now see myself as connected to others, not because I've made the choice, 
but because of the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we think we're more wise than him? That we can live outside of God's normal means of grace? It starts by trusting in Christ. Do you have faith in him? Do you believe in Jesus? Then the next step is get baptized. Get baptized. Then join the local church. Get connected. Commit yourself to living in a community. And get ready. If you're going to commit to save your community church, get ready to have your life disrupted and radically inconvenienced. Get ready to join an uncomfortable, awkward, and at times messy family of sinners who have been forgiven much and therefore love much. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we pray God will build. And that's what it will look like to be the Savior community. Let's pray. Father, we want to come and remember John 15 where it says we can do nothing apart from you. And that means coming to salvation. That has to occur as you give the gift of faith and open up our eyes. And so we pray that we would see many become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray that your spirit would give the growth that we may water, we may plant, but your spirit is the one that has to give the growth. God, we're so weak. It's so hard at times. It would be so much easier to run away. But we want to remember the love of Christ. We want to remember the mercy of Christ. And in view of your mercies, we want to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. And so God, we pray that we would put aside any nominal faith and that we would be all in, in our commitment to you, in our commitment to the family of God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see each other with humility and with grace. That we would remember that we ourselves were sinners saved by grace. That every day, even in our best days, we are not beyond the need of your grace. And that you would help us, help us to be patient, help us to love one another, help us to forgive not because it's easy, but as we reflect upon your forgiveness of us. Would you free us from ourselves, from any narcissism or self-centeredness? And I pray, we pray that Christ, you would fill us up and that out of the overflow of our hearts, we would become the community. And so thank you for being patient with us Thank you for always loving us despite seeing us at our worst. I pray that we pray that the gospel will continue to melt our hearts. We will grow in our understanding of our sin and the forgiveness that you have freely provided. And we will be enabled to love and become a supernatural community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.